This is the Disciple Makers Podcast by Discipleship.org. This is Season 7, and every week this season, we'll bring you fresh content about making disciples. Discipleship.org brings together like-minded organizations, and our main goal in everything we do, including this podcast, is to help you become a Jesus-style disciple maker. We're featuring the Great Commandment Network today on our podcast, with content specifically designed for senior pastors. But before we get into that content, we wanted to make sure you knew about a free resource available at discipleship.org slash ebooks. It's called Evangelism or Discipleship. Subtitle is, Can They Effectively Work Together? It's by Bill Hull and Bobby Harrington, and it challenges the idea that evangelism and discipleship are separate. So check it out and download it for free at discipleship.org slash ebooks. Now for today's featured content. Today we're featuring an episode from Great Commandment Network and their track at the National Disciple Making Forum called Deconstructing Discipleship as We Know It. Today's episode is called A Concentric Circle Model of Discipleship to Empower the Great Commandment, featuring Bobby Harrington and David Ferguson. So um, I just want to welcome all of you to this session. Um, so I've had the privilege of, uh, you know, helping start discipleship.org and hosting various leaders over the years. And I had known about David Ferguson uh, from years ago because through him, my wife and I were blessed where uh, they had a weekend retreat uh, with the Great Commandment Network. Was mm-hmm. that, is that mm-hmm. the right terminology? Right. And uh, I realized that God had really gifted David uh, in many ways that many people in the uh, kind of the broad evangelical disciple-making world didn't know about. So um, last April, uh, actually it's a year, year, about a year and a half ago, uh, I had called David and I had invited him to meet with the leaders of some of these networks and his insights were, like, really incredibly helpful. And then I went to uh, one of the meetings that David had with the Pentecostal and Charismatic Assemblies. If I'm getting the names right, you got to help me here. And uh, saw just, like, he developed an inventory, a discipleship inventory. So here's a guy who so many people don't know about, and part of that is because he's been intentionally... Uh, not wanting to self-promote. He has two earned PhDs, one with Alistair McGrath at Oxford uh, in theology, and the other one from Oxford on psychology. And his expertise has been experiencing scripture and what it really means. And his advocacy is that uh, uh, it's not good for for us to be alone. Mm and we need relationships. And uh, so when I had the chance to try to twist his arm to come and be with us, I've actually asked him to also consider uh, a writing project with me. I don't know if you remember that. But uh, um, because I want to write on his coattails, which is what I typically do, write on somebody else's coattails. And I just thought, what a great thing, especially for senior pastors. Now, some of you uh, won't be here present. You'll be listening to this recording and uh, I just want you to know I'm really grateful to God for this man, and uh, I love to learn from him because he has so much 
to teach everybody who cares about disciple making. So let me lead us in a word of prayer, and uh, I'm going to turn it over to you, David, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to sit down and be taking notes. Mm -hmm. God, in Jesus' name, we come to you. Thank you that you made us, uh, not just with... uh, to love you and love others with our mind, but also with our heart and our hands, uh, to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And thank you for the ministry and the mm-hmm. life of David Ferguson. And we just pray that you'd speak mm-hmm. through him to us now and that you would reflect your kindness to us by bringing out your best in him. In Jesus' name, mm-hmm. amen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thanks, Bobby. I appreciate the opportunity to be here and uh, tell you a little bit about uh, our journey and a little bit about our heart to to be helpful to pastors and churches. And uh, um, so uh, the the general title of what I'll be doing, he's asked me to do three senior pastor workshops, which I'll do this afternoon. And they're all really under the heading of deconstructing uh, discipleship as we know it. Um, And we say that to say, it was alluded to in one of our earlier little gatherings this morning, that we can master discipleship-making methods and miss Jesus. Now, the Pharisees were great at that. Studied the Scriptures diligently and forgot that they speak of Him. And uh, so my own little personal message that kind of led me into this would be my wife and I got married. Um, we were not Christians at the time. We got married when we were 16 years old. Uh, Neither of us followers of Jesus. Um, I used to say we had four to five years of bad marriage. She'd say, no, at least eight to ten were really bad. So it was a tough time in there. We came to faith in our early 20s and immediately got involved in uh, what I call trying to make up for lost time. Uh, I had done lost really well. Some of you don't know exactly what I just said, but uh, it it was time to kind of make up for lost time. So I immediately began to involve myself in in, uh, youth ministry and college ministry. Uh, and so was very involved in that, uh, came to, to be a part of that Jesus movement time. Uh, Josh McDowell and I became great friends, introduced him to his wife, Dottie, and that was the age. I, I remember, however, a wake-up call in 1972, I was with uh, Dr. Bright and Josh and a few others in something called Explo 72. It was one of the first large gatherings of Christians in what basically is the DFW airport right now. Uh, and... Uh, I remember looking back over the next two or three years after that to more than half of the people who were on that platform had fallen to ethical and moral failures, divorced their spouses, or attempted suicide. And it was a tragic wake-up call to me that kind of says, I wonder why this stuff is not working. Uh, In my own life, um, having come to faith and trying to master some things, got involved a lot, memorized a lot of scriptures, and uh, memorized books of the Bible with some of my fanatic uh, Jesus friends. And we taught ourselves Greek, and we got real heady about knowledge that puffs you up, that even Bible knowledge will do that to you. And I remember 13 years in marriage, I asked my wife one night, Teresa, do you love me? Uh, She says, David, I don't feel anything for you. I just feel numb. It became another wake-up call. It wasn't just about those people on that platform in 1972. It was about me. It was kind of like, uh, David, thou art the man. Well, that's you. This stuff's not working for you. Okay? You got a lot of discipleship groups. You're traveling around trying to help college ministry folks. 
it's not working for you. So begin to challenge me this idea of, and I'll give you the Matthew 9.17 analogy real quickly to kind of focus on what I will do the rest of the afternoon, is that you don't put old wine skin, fresh wine in old wine skins. So if you use the analogy of the wine being the message, let's say the message of discipleship, and the wineskins being the methodologies of disciple-making. We can get all the wineskins in the world right, which they need to get right, because they're not right. We don't have in our churches disciple-making passion and ministry. But is it possible we need to rethink the message that we're putting into our discipleship? That began to intrigue me. And so we worked on that for many years and continue to work on that to look at some of the things that may need to be deconstructed. Okay? And this time I'll give you at least four of those that you might want to rethink in your church okay? concerning your discipleship ministry that have to do with the message. Okay? They don't have anything to do with methods. Okay? There's enough folks like Bobby and everybody else on the planet that is doing a phenomenal job championing uh, the, the imperative of uh, discipleship-making methods. But uh, I want to talk to you about the message. This particular session is, uh, is called Call to Love. And uh, it, it's basically this thought in uh, John chapter 13 when uh, you remember Jesus in the upper room with the disciples. And we've had the what we call Passover meal. And he's whispered uh, to Judas, whatever you do, do quickly. And Judas leaves. It's almost as if the, when the door hits him in the backside, <laughs> the whole tone of the passage changes. Just read it. He says, my little children. Nowhere in the New Testament are those words used till right now. My little children. It's as if he is not going to use those words till Judas is out of here. <laughs> my little children. Only a little while longer am I with you. And where I'm going, What? You cannot go. Do you think that got their attention? You know, you just left everything, followed him. He says, oh, by the way, I'm out of here. And secondly, you ain't going. <laughs> yeah, and if you keep looking at the Upper Room Discourse, which was one of those passages my fanatic Jesus uh, friends memorized years ago from John 13 to 17. Uh, if you keep uh, just meditating on that passage, you'll get to the place where he's leaving. They're staying. And in John 17, he says, Father, I pray that you'll keep them from the evil one. Now, that'll just bless you. He's leaving. You're staying here with the devil. All right? So that's kind of the background of the passage of where we're headed. And so he looks at them in John 13, 34, and he says, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another even as I loved you. There's several things about that. First of all, he's just declared, number one, I am God. Because only God gives commandments. The Pharisees would have never said commandments. They'd have said rules, regulations, edicts, because to give commandments is to claim to be what? Claim to be God. That's what got him crucified. It's as if he is saying, the God who gave you the first ten is about to do what? Give you a what? Number 11. Then was called the 11th commandment. So this idea of a focus right there uh, in that upper room is really significant. And so we're going to focus on that in a few minutes, of how we... Uh, live out that calling to love, okay? Um, and uh, develop what we call a concentric circle model of discipleship. And I'll illustrate that to you. Um, 
in the, in the following kind of way. Many of you would know that in Matthew chapter 22, he was asked one day, Master, what's the greatest commandment? <clears throat> he didn't say, I'm not quite sure. Come back tomorrow, see if I can figure it out. He took a verse out of Deuteronomy 6, 1 out of Leviticus 18, put them together. The greatest is this, is what? <laughs> you should love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, don't forget that, pastors. That's the greatest commandment. It's vertical. Is that where your discipleship starts? Just ask it. Is that where your new member classes start? Is that where your new believer classes start? Equipping people how to what? Love God. Uh, that may reinform some of your curriculum and materials, and we'll talk about that. And to love your neighbors, the Greek word there is near ones. So we like to say, if you're married, guess who that is? Just go ahead and guess. This was easy. That's what had not happened in my own life after 13 years into marriage. Watch. I hope I get time to finish this before the end of this session. See, I was trying to love other people out here in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. I'd rather witness to people on the University of Texas campus than to go home to a wife who needed a husband. Because to be honest with you, I didn't know what a husband really did. I'd never really seen a husband be a husband. I had three kids. They needed a daddy to be a daddy. I didn't know what a daddy did. And pastors, you're always going to find you will gravitate to where you feel adequate, and you will avoid where you feel inadequate. See, I felt more adequate witnessing to people and leading Bible studies and leading prayer hours and prayer retreats than I did loving my neighbors. Greatest commandment, love him, love your neighbors. I'll just rhetorically say this, we'll look at it. Can you really have an effective discipleship-making ministry if we're not discipling couples who are married? Can you really have a discipleship-making ministry if we're not somehow equipping parents to be the primary disciples of their own children? Love him, love neighbors, as you love yourself. And then, interestingly, uh, Matthew twenty-two forty, it's actually the verse that I will spend the second workshop session on. <laughs> Upon these two commandments, loving God and loving others, depends all the law and the prophets. Some of you familiar with the King James calls, it says that they hang on the law and the prophets. That is what we call the forgotten purpose of truth. We have lost that one for the last almost hundred years in America, Western Christianity. It's what we call the relational purpose of Scripture. So the great commandment is just filled <clears throat> with insights as to how we love God, love people, as we love ourselves. Upon these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. The word law and the prophets in that day was basically what we call Bible, right? It was a shorthand word for the Old Testament, law and prophets. So we're familiar a little bit with the great commandment. Now, let's talk about the Great Commission. Uh, now, pastors, what I'm now about to say, now about to say th- th- this will preach. Y'all are all, I know, I hope you're coming here for yourself, but you're also coming for sermons. I understand that. Uh, so, so this one will preach. <clears throat> I'm about to talk about the most misunderstood word in the Great Commission. The most misunderstood word. Let's see if you can figure it out. In fact, it's kind of interesting that these same disciples who 
he had just said, I'm leaving, you're staying here with the devil. Okay. <laughs> Goes through this whole roller coaster experience uh, of the crucifixion, the empty tomb, him appearing to more than 500, and he gathers them together and he's about to issue this great commission, we call it. Now imagine if you're one of those disciples, he's leaving, you're staying here with the devil. Just don't, don't, don't miss that. That's why Neil Anderson is leading a seminar like he is. And I think, I think, he's, I think the devil's still here. Um, and he says, I want you to go forth and make disciples of what? What's the word? All. Think about that word all. Very important. I want you to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love neighbors as yourself, love yourself. And I want you to go forth and make disciples of what? All nations. Now imagine you're one of those disciples, folks. And he says, I want you to go to all the nations. These guys probably haven't been 100 miles away from home. They might have been to Damascus. Can you imagine there's certain anxiety there? <laughs> and it begs this question. Watch, this is very important. Well, Lord, we're supposed to go into all the nations. Where do we start? Where do we start? Now, a gracious God, watch, is going to tell them where to start. <laughs> Such that in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, when the Holy Spirit comes, here's where you start. Right? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. Is that right? Yeah, please say yes. Okay. So, I'm headed up to the most misunderstood word. <laughs> Are you all still tracking with me? George is about to give us some PowerPoint slides here. And you'll see where we're at. Because here's what's about to happen. He says, I want you to go forth, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And I want you to, you all don't know this, teach them, not just teach them, but teach them to what? Obey. Teach them to obey. Teach them to observe. Watch. What? What's the next word? All. All. Don't jump over that. That's the most misunderstood word right there. Can you imagine these disciples saying, now, wait a minute, Lord. We're supposed to go into all the world. <laughs> yes. And we're supposed to teach them to live, obey. How much of what you taught? All. all. Now watch. Lord, you taught a lot of stuff. Man, we remember the Sermon on the Mount. We remember all those parables. <laughs> Man, we remember that all that teaching on the kingdom. We remember that upper room discourse we just came out of. Watch. It begs the question. Lord. Where should we start in having people live, obey all he commanded? Where should we start? You start where he said to start, which is the great commandment. <laughs> right? Come on, please. This is just exegetical stuff. Right? He's already told you where to start. Just like he said, start Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria. So he's already told us where to start. And so, let's go to those, those concentric circles, George. So what that begins to argue for is what we call a concentric circle model of discipleship. It says, we've got to start learning to equip people, first of all, how to love the Lord. Again, I won't ask you where does your new member, new believer, uh, six-week stuff start. It would be rare if it started with teaching people how to love the Lord. Our discipleship normally starts with doctrine, right? Yeah. Okay, behaviors, disciplines. We can do spiritual gifts. 
got to get tithing in there. Maybe one of the things we've got to deconstruct is we're starting in the wrong place. Because you start pressing people how to love the Lord, try this in your church. Just do it anonymously. Do a little thing on the little bulletin. Hey, how is it that you love the Lord? Have them put that in the offering plate or whatever. Just see what you get. 80% of the time, you're going to get people answering the question like this. The way you love the Lord is to do stuff for Him. I promise that's what you'll get back. You'll get uh, do stuff for Him. I like to say if He needed stuff done, He'd get angels to do it, and they don't complain. That's not how you love the Lord. So we've got to equip believers how to love the Lord. I'll give you two clues, and we'll weave these into my next two uh, workshops. But the first two clues I'll give you is one of the ways you love the Lord uh, is to you show up with a glad, thankful heart. See, when Psalms 100 verse 3 says, serve the Lord with gladness, <laughs> one of the ways you love the Lord is to show up with a grateful, thankful heart. Like, how many of you are parents? How many of you are parents? What if one of your kids showed up at your house and said, Mom, Dad, could I come by the house and just spend a few moments expressing gratitude to you of how much you've blessed me? Mm. Now, after you have awakened from having passed out, <laughs> would you agree with me that that communicated love to you? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Those of you, senior pastor, man, I would make sure my worship leader from time to time reminds the people. We've been singing some choruses. We've been looking at some PowerPoints. We've been raising some hands. But you need to understand what you've been doing is loving the Lord. For His good pleasure, you've been created. And if we can get people understanding that in corporate worship, we're going to take it into their private worship. Love the Lord. The second, second way I'll give you about how you love the Lord, and I'll build out several of these, <clears throat> is you listen to the Lord. You listen. One of the most misunderstanding things for worship, I think I talk about this in the third workshop today, is how do you take your worship services to the next level? Okay. And I'll give you a little clue in Acts 13 too. It says the saints at Antioch were ministering unto the Lord. Some translations say worshiping the Lord. So do some of you have worship services? Just, just check it. Okay, we, were, we, were, we miss it. Okay, so we're ministering to the Lord, but then it says, but the Spirit said unto them, you know what else they were doing? They were listening to the Lord. How much of that have you incorporated into your worship services? I'll just leave that alone. They were listening to the Lord. Those of you that are parents, what if one of your kids showed up to the house, Mom, Dad, I just need to come by the house, and I, I would like to listen to some of the wisdom you have for my life. After you've awakened from having passed out again, would that have communicated love to you? Yes. We've got to start equipping our people how to listen to the Lord. Pastors, one of the most beautiful things you can do, we'll kind of build this out this afternoon, is to have some moments with your people. Pause. Don't hear from you and hear from Him. They need to learn to listen. Create space for people to listen. So the first thing I would suggest that maybe we need to deconstruct about discipleship is maybe we started <clears throat> in the wrong place. If we start anywhere other than loving Him, I don't think we're being faithful to the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. We've got to equip people how to love the Lord. Okay. Uh, next, what we're going to do is basically 
when you put those two things together, you get this intersection of the Great Commandment and Great Commission. Now, why is this so important? Next slide. Why is this so important? Uh, on the next slide, George, is that <clears throat> multiplication is maximized by simplicity and purity. Our, our whole ministry is based upon basically 12 Bible verses. Six of them, Great Commandment, Great Commission. And six of them on Acts 2, 42 47, through 47, that's how you do it, okay? Which is uh, fellowship and worship and discipleship and serving and evangelism. But basically, if you just think about it, if you keep it simple, we want to be, we want to equip disciples in great commission living, empowered by great commandment passion. That's simple, isn't it? What are we trying to do? We're trying to equip disciples in great commission living, empowered by great commandment love. Okay, that's what we're doing. That's simple. Because if we're not careful, the devil will lead us, and str- lead us astray. That's, you know, remember he was still down here? Mm-hmm. See, he will lead us to every other imaginable idea. Here's why simplicity is so important. Because that's how you multiply. I love to say uh, <clears throat> there was a dandelion in there. I didn't know we had a dandelion ministry or whatever that was. That's awesome. I'm excited about that. How did God multiply stuff quickly in Genesis chapter 1? He did it by taking one simple pattern. It's called a fractal, if you keep up with fractal geometry. That pattern on that dandelion is exactly the same pattern, and he multiplies it a million times. That's how you multiply quickly. That's how movements multiply. You get it so complex, never multiply. How did he say... Let those things grow in the sea. Well, he did it. Next slide. Because he took a simple pattern in that shell, and he says, let's let's do that about 50 times. Okay? Simplicity. Okay? That's why Paul says, I'm burdened we've been led astray from the simplicity and purity of our devotion to Christ. So it's critical that we focus on uh, keeping the main thing the main thing. We're convinced that this idea of great commandment, great commission is the main thing. It's one of the things that allows us to work with about 22 different denominations, which means we don't talk about anything else. We don't talk about apostolic authority. We don't talk about women in ministry. We don't talk about whether it's eight gifts, 15 gifts, or 23 spiritual gifts. We just talk about, do you believe in loving God, loving people, and going forth seeing other people love God and love people? If you do, we can make that happen. Next slide. Okay, second thing we probably need to deconstruct. is if you took the Mark 12 passage, Jesus starts quoting a little earlier in Deuteronomy 6. What's the greatest commandment, Lord? Hero is the Lord our God is one Lord. Don't miss that. Love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In essence, that's the declaration from Deuteronomy 6 of the children of Israel saying, Our God is the one Lord. Our God is the real God. See, that was declared in an age in which there was allegedly gods everywhere. We had gods in the rocks and gods in the trees. And in essence, the children of Israel were saying, No, our God's the real God. Uh, Would you imagine you can only love with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength the real God? Please say yes. Research studies in several universities, several Christian universities over the last decade would tell us that the vast majority of people sitting in the pew do not see God for who he really is. They see him as controlling, authoritarian, critical. What are we doing in our discipleship 
to make sure that people see God for who he really is so that they can love him with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. Maybe that needs attention. What do you think? So, uh, we've done a, we do, got all kinds of things. We use this next uh, Bible verse to kind of explore that. <clears throat> uh, let's see, I think, George, the next slide is um, probably John 14, 15. <coughs> Before I talk about that for just a moment, could I go back to the upper room where he has to say to Philip, Have you been so long with me? And yet you don't know me. What if that's not just about Philip? What if that's about a whole lot of people sitting in front of us on Sundays? They've been with us a long time, and yet do they really know him? So this is a little four-part sermon series based on one Bible verse, John 14, 15. So we basically just say, uh, the person that is saying those questions, uh, saying that verse is Jesus. He's saying it to his disciples, and he's saying, if you love me, you keep my commandments. So we just basically say, okay, let's take those words from Jesus' disciples, and we begin to ask these questions. Well, what, what, what's the attitude of Jesus when he says that? What's his heart? What's his facial expression? <laughs> okay. And on one Sunday, you begin to explore. I wonder if some of us see him when he says that verse. Watch. Because many of us might have been trained with a little Zacchaeus song. Anybody sing a little Zacchaeus song, God Climb Trees? How many of your people were trained, hurry on down, I'm going to your house today? As a finger pointing Jesus. And that's still how they see him. Do you know, uh, we've done this with probably 1,500 or so churches. About a third of the congregation will identify I read that verse, and here's what I see. Watch, look at me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's just an inspecting Jesus. It's hard to love an inspecting Jesus with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I suffered with that one for probably the first 20 years in my faith journey. I mean, I wake up in the morning, I'm just convinced he's looking down. He says he's awake, and there's no telling what he's going to get into. Right? I mean, my God's hiding in the grain fields with the Pharisees trying to jump out, catch me doing something wrong. Inspecting. Second week, we get them to look at the ver- same, very ver- same verse and say, you know, there's some of you. I had a grandmother like this. My grandmother on my mother's side would have raised, uh, oftentimes raised my brother and I and my cousin. And uh, she's a little bitty, short lady, frail lady. But when she needed to discipline you, here's what she did. She would fold her arms and shake her head and say, shame on you. Did you know that it's possibly a good 20-25% of Western world church attenders will read John 14-15 and here's what they see. Look at me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's his essence he's saying, I knew you didn't love me. And what you just did proved it. He's just disappointed in you. See, because if he inspects you long enough, you know what? You're not going to pass inspection. Then he's just disappointed in you. I remember probably 21 years into marriage, 21 years into marriage, I'm sharing this kind of stuff with my wife. I'm saying, honey, 
I, I haven't even seen God right. I, don't, I haven't seen Jesus right. I, I just wake up thinking he's inspecting me, he's disappointed in me. And I had my wife say this to me. This is the third week. She says, honey, when I wake up in the morning, to be honest with you, I cannot even imagine that God notices that I'm awake. I know I'm going to heaven. I know I'm a believer. But for him to take thought of me personally is beyond my imagination. When I read that verse, if you, he's looking past me at somebody important. He's just distant. Do you know you may have a lot of your congregation, when they wake up and when they cannot imagine that he's noticing them? Do you know it's hard to love with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength a God who doesn't notice you? Just kind of work through that one. Okay, now we've left our congregation hanging for three weeks. Is this not cool? Yes, it's cool. They'll come back on this fourth Sunday. Because you just keep saying, well, we just, we just need to find an answer here. So on the fourth Sunday, you basically say to them, hey, let's read the verse again. Now, the way we read it is what we call in context. Uh, the problem is we just oftentimes don't do it. Uh, but we've learned about it. <clears throat> and so the context of the verse, one way to do it is you go back to the, uh, you know, the, 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 the first part of the passage where it starts. And it really starts earlier, first verse, where Jesus, we oftentimes <coughs> preach it at funerals, Right? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house are many mansions. For not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, if you keep reading those verses, do you begin to pick up a pattern? Those are promises. I'm going to prepare a place to you. I'm going to come receive you where I am. There I am also. So you kind of start reading the passage. Man, this is a list of promises. Another way you understand context is you read the previous verse to that one. Now, what's the previous verse to John 14, 15? You don't have to know what it is. It's John 14, 14. Okay, so <clears throat> it's the verse. What? My brother was about to read it. If you ask anything in my name, that will I do, that the mm. Father would be glorified in the Son. Is that a promise? Mm. Now watch. The way to read the verse, it's not if you love me. It's not, it's not think, shaking your head. He's saying, if you love me, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now watch, this is night and day difference. When you wake up in the morning, is he wanting to look down to see if you're keeping his commandments? So you prove that you love him? (laughs) Or when you wake up in the morning, is he wanting you to what? Please say love him. Because he knows when you do, the Holy Spirit will rise up inside of you that says, all costs, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not going to go that way of sin because I don't want to grieve the person who so loves me. I'm going to keep his commandments. My wife and I have now seven grandchildren. And our first grandson, Zachary, is now 21 years old. I remember when he was born, uh, all my kids live in the same town. Two of them work with us. And uh, we keep little Zachary while his parents go out on dates. And so here little Zachary is. We've got a little room back there. He's taking naps. And my wife and I are babysitting little Zachary. And we've got some technology today they didn't have when our kids back. They have a little monitor back here with little Zachary and one in here with my wife and I. And we can actually hear the little guy waking up. They didn't have that when our kids were growing up. You just hope they yelled loud enough that you heard them back there. All right. So we got new stuff. And so um, here we are. We're hearing little Zachary waking up from that. My wife gets this big smile on her face. She goes running back there. Any of you grandparents? She goes running back and smile on her face. He's awake. He's awake. I'm looking forward to playing with Zachary. And I saw that first week of his life. And the Lord says to me, David, that is my heart towards you when you wake up. He's awake, and I'm looking forward to love you today. 
Now that is the real God. That God you can love with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. We've got to deconstruct how people misconceive God. Critical to effective discipleship. Critical to effectively doing the first thing, which is love the Lord. All right. Uh, so let's look at this. The, the third thing we've got to deconstruct is... This one's tough, but it's this. A lot of research would tell us that most of the people sitting in front of us in the pews, watch, they may have a historic a belief in a historical Jesus, but not a contemporary Jesus. I want to make some distinction between a historical Jesus and a contemporary Jesus. In other words, <clears throat> in Luke 19... When he says, hurry on down, I'm going to your house today. Historically, I think it probably happened in Jericho. I don't know if it's the same sycamore tree, but there is a big one there. Right? But historically, I believe the Bible is exactly true, and it happened the way the Bible says it. And then he hurried on down. Had a meal with Zacchaeus, and during that meal, Zacchaeus blurts out, half of all I have, I give the poor anybody I give, I have stolen from, I give back fourfold. That's a historical Jesus. It's a great picture of how we must turn a finger-pointing Jesus, remember that's oftentimes the way we were trained to sing that song, into a welcoming Jesus, right? Because the text is very clear. Zacchaeus hurried down with gladness in his heart. Now, how did that gladness get there? Because... Jesus is threatening him, critical of him, inspecting him. No, he's welcoming. Well, here's what a contemporary Jesus means. Does Jesus still welcome people and want to hang out with you? Does he still do that? What you're really doing is you're applying what's called Hebrews 13.8. He is the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. Many of our people sitting in front of us have no concept of that Jesus being that available and that approachable. I remember visiting with a publisher in Chicago probably 25 years ago. They had published, uh, I don't know, a dozen or so of our books. <clears throat> Done pretty well. And I actually took them a book proposal that's related to uh, my next workshop uh, and those three books over there. And uh, the president... <laughs> of this unnamed publishing company that's in Chicago, uh, <clears throat> said to me, Dr. Ferguson, we can't, we, we can't publish those. I said, why not? He says, you cannot sell what people don't want to hear. And they don't want to hear that they don't see God right. They don't want to hear that they're not doing everything they should be doing with the Bible. They don't want to hear that they're not seeing people the way God sees them. I remember leaving that meeting saying, thanks a lot. You've got a lot of money off these first 12 books. And I left there kind of rejected. Can you imagine that? Feeling a little bit like an outcast. You see, what's about to happen on a plane trip back? It's me up a tree. That's me. Feeling kind of alone. Somewhere between Chicago and Texas, probably somewhere over Kansas, uh, I had a Holy Spirit visitation with that Bible verse. 
Hurry on down, David. I want to hang out with you. And there was something inside of my heart that says, if he wants to hang out with me, hang the rest of them. I'm be all right. And God took that, opened some doors in ways that the publisher hates themselves they didn't publish it. But I'll just say that. He's contemporary. Amen? Amen. Ask your congregation this question. Next picture. Uh, just ask them about this shortest verse in the Bible. It's what? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Ask them this rhetorical question and see what you get. Does Jesus only weep for people named Mary in Bethany? You see, we embrace a historical Jesus. There really is a Bethany. You can go there and you can kick around. And there really is a place that looks like it could be Lazarus too, all that kind of stuff. So historically we say, I believe that stuff. But how about a contemporary Jesus who is the same yesterday, what, today, and forever? <coughs> Are people embracing a contemporary Jesus that says he is still the God of all comfort? Who will do what? He'll comfort you. See, are are we leading our people into experiencing this contemporary Jesus who at times welcomes them, who at times hurts for them? See, that's contemporary. We would say that's a really critical issue. So if we keep our discipleship focused on the historicity of Jesus, which is essential, (laughs) but not allow the Hebrews 13, 8, he's the same. And he's available to you today just like he was then. So I still remember finishing a writing project uh, out of town. Got back home uh, late <clears throat> into Texas. I was driving home, and uh, I knew my wife was already in bed. She's an early to bed person, so I'm kind of feeling been on the road a while. I'm feeling kind of alone. Uh, Look forward to get home. <clears throat> Had to make a split decision about whether or not I stay on this interstate or I uh, get off into the tra- off in the neighborhoods and wander and get the right way. I topped this hill. Turns out in our particular town, this. This, uh, there's a, something called a Longhorn football team or something that has uh, messed up all the traffic. So I go over this hill, and there is nothing but taillights in front of me. I had made the wrong decision. You ever done that? I actually hit the steering wheel, and I said these words, I can't believe I did this, as if I should have known what was on the other side of the hill, right? I can't believe I did this. And then I said this. I can't do anything right. Didn't say it, but I thought it. I can't do anything right. And the Lord brought to mind a memory when I was five years old. My father was an alcoholic. He was out in the garage one day, been drinking way too early in the morning, working on a car, and I was out there trying to help him, trying to get his approval, to be honest. He said, give me a five-eighths-inch boxed-in wrench. I went to a toolbox, didn't know the difference. I, I was proud that I could tell a five from an eight. Didn't know an open end from a box end, and I brought him the wrong one. He threw it at me, cursed me, sent me in the house, and the last words I heard were, you can't do anything right. And right there in the middle of this interstate, parked with a bunch of traffic, I had a visitation of a Jesus who was hurting for me. I started weeping. But those, we, those tears, those tears are not sad tears. Those tears are happy tears. That the God of all comfort is comforting me. And Psalms 139.3 says, He is 
caringly involved in all my ways. See, I think I freshly encountered a contemporary Jesus who is the God of all comfort, just as real as Mary did in Bethany. Discipleship must depend upon a historical Jesus who is contemporary. I'll give you a third illustration that's kind of another rhetorical question you can ask your church, and that's this one. Remember in Luke chapter 22, Peter keeps blurting out stuff of what he's going to do, what he's not going to do, all that kind of stuff. Uh, And then Jesus has to say, no, uh, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me. But I have prayed for you. And when you're restored, strengthen your brother. So the rhetorical question is this. Does Jesus only pray for people named Peter in the first century? Mm. We've got to make him contemporary. He's got to become contemporary. I mean, Hebrews 7.25 says, He, Jesus, now ever lives to make intercession. So it begins to say, can, is your God big enough that he can build mansions, plan the second coming, and pray for everybody? Well, just deal with it. Maybe he can. He ever lives to make intercession. Romans chapter 8, verse 33, 34. Paul asks a very rhetorical question. Who shall bring charge against you? It's only God who justifies. Who shall condemn you? Only Jesus Christ the righteous, who's, been li- who's lived, who's died, had been raised, and watch, and is now, beautiful contemporary word, now interceding for you. How many of our people have deeply in their hearts an image of Jesus on his knees praying for them? I had a moment 23 or 4 years ago Never had the kind of devotional life I knew I needed to have, wanted to have. It had been duty and obligation. It was a check the quiet time off the box. And reading you through Matthew 26, and you get to that, can you come pray with me just one hour? And look around, and the disciples are what? Asleep. And he says to them, can you not pray with me just one hour? And I had an image of Jesus ever living to make intercession, praying my prayer list, praying for the needs of my heart, the burdens of my life. But watch, but he's praying without me. He's praying without me. And those red letters were no longer just for Peter, James, and John. Those red letters were for me. It's transformative. Made all the difference in the world. I don't want to leave him alone praying for me. Amen? Third thing we got to deconstruct is a historical only Jesus. He is historical. Everything the book says about him happened. (laughs) But he's also the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, Fourth thing. I think it's fourth thing. We'll see what what pops up. Uh, Well, let's do this real quick. One of the things we might do before I move on, one of the most significant verses that will help us real quick is, is this one. If you ask anything according to his will, two great things happen. He knows you hear. He hears us 
and you will have the request that you ask. Is the great commandment the will of God? So in just a moment, we're just going to pause, take 30 seconds, to just pray a little prayer that says, Lord, I want you to deepen my love of you. And I want you to deepen my love towards some of the people in my life. He may give you a name. He may give you a spouse name, a kid's name, a grandkid's name, an in-law's name. I pray this prayer, and I've got one son-in-law who keeps popping up. You need to love this one better than that, the one you... All right, I'm just saying. We're going to do this. Here's why this is so important. I want, this is what I'm going to work on my next... next uh, workshop, how critical it is that we actually experience Bible verses at church. But I want to illustrate this one to you. Because I would say most of us go to way too many meetings and we go away unchanged. And it gets worse. We know we're unchanged. It gets even worse. We go back to people and they observe we are unchanged. I mean, did I just describe Sunday mornings for a lot of folks? Wouldn't it be exciting if you could go away from this workshop with a certain sense of hope that you can go away different? See, I'm about to give us 30 seconds to say, Lord, I'm going to pray something, and I know it's according to your will. I want you to deepen my love of you. Help me show up with more thanksgiving. Help me show up with more of a listening heart. I want to better love you. We've already talked about those two ways we can do that. I want to deepen my love of you, Lord. And then... If you want to give me a name of some neighbor that you want me to better love, give it to me, Lord. Because I'd like to go away from this discipleship forum a little different. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we're going to be quiet right now. We're going to pray young Samuel's prayer. Speak, Lord. We're listening. Who Who might it be that you want us to better love? And then lead us into this kind of prayer. Lord, I do want to better love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. I want to show up more often to serve you with a glad heart. I want to show up more often with the attitude of Samuel, speak, I'm listening. Change me, Lord. Deepen my love of you. And send me away from this gathering more passionately committed to love my near ones, whoever they may be. Just in the quietness of this time, would you ask him to do that? Just ask him to do that. Thank you, Father. Well, I believe we have pleased you as your people have showed up with a yielded heart and we've asked to be changed. We now claim by faith that you will do what the verse says. You have heard us and we will have the request that we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The fourth thing we want to deconstruct in these last few moments is uh, this idea that we have got to start with our near ones. Okay, We've got to start with our near ones. If it's not working at home, it does not export very well. Yeah. One of the reasons we're not getting more missional engagement into the mountains of culture, into the marketplace, into our communities, is that the devil, who is still here is continuing to intimidate me that it ain't working at home. It steals the boldness and the courage to impart my life 
and the gospel to other people. So when we think about missional living, right, when we think about missional living, where, where Paul says, I, I, Peter says, I was well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but my what? My very life. Where do you and I learn how to impart your very life? I promise you, you learn it with your near ones. And so too often times we're trying to send people out to impart their life to the lost and the gospel, and they don't know how to impart their life because it's not happening at home. And so it's critically important that we end up making this stuff work at home. And I want to I want to close with, uh, in the PowerPoints that you have online, there's a, there's a video, it takes three minutes, so I don't want to use the time, but it's called the Still Face Experiment. Very powerful about how people were wired to connect with other people. And without connecting, bad things happen. Whether it's bad things to us, our spouses, our kids. Okay? So it's the power of loving your near ones. So it'll be in the PowerPoint. You watch it. Really, What I'd like to close with is something I love to talk about every senior pastor with concerning a story in Mark chapter 5. Again, my wife and I had had all kinds of conflicts for as many years. We've now been married 56 years. We've We've had conflict of everything imaginable. You know, nobody took out the trash, no gas in my car, no money in my check, but all that kind of stuff. Probably for 20 years, we argued over how early you had to get to the airport. I'm one of those guys saying, I am staying at the office as long as I can. Man, I'm doing ministry. People dying going to hell, you know. And she said, well, honey, we need to get to the airport. This is long before 9-11. Okay. Arguing over that. So I am uh, I'm reading through this passage in Mark chapter 5. In fact, we were preparing for a trip to the Middle East. We take a group. Uh, during Pentecost week uh, every year, to just visit certain sites and have Jesus encounters. So this is one of them. So we end up in Capernaum and we talk about uh, Jairus. So imagine this story, because folks, I want to encourage you, I think this is us. And who we are are the disciples in this passage. I came to call this, basically this question, how do you handle interruptions from those nearest you? How do you handle interruptions? You see, this is a passage that basically says, Jairus, a synagogue official, come to Jesus. My daughter's dying. Would you come heal her? This is the first breakthrough into the Jewish synagogue. He's worked with tax collectors and fishermen. This, is a, this guy's a muck. You know what that, that translates for you? This guy is high stuff, Jairus. This is a breakthrough. Can you imagine how, how the disciples must get excited? We're going to get to show off Jesus. We've seen him heal people. Man, if he heals his daughter, there's no telling. The doors are going to open through old Jairus. So these disciples are excited. So the Bible says a crowd, they head off to Jairus' house. And this is a rare contextual story because it's a story within a story. Because as they're headed off to Jairus' house, it says, but now there's a woman with an issue of blood. Now we've got another story <laughs> who comes up through the crowd, touches him, and he stops She's healed. He says, who touched me? And the disciples say, oh, what do you mean who touched you? Now, if you were one of the disciples that just got interrupted, would you be excited we just stopped? Or would you be irritated? You're irritated. In fact, you see it. There's actually a Greek continuous tense here where it says, and what do you mean who touched you? What do you mean who touched you? What do you mean who touched you? It's as if every one of them said the same thing. What do you mean who touched you? 
They went from excited to now irritated. Now, I remember the morning the Lord says, David, that's you. Your wife shows up and says, honey, could we head to the airport? I'd like to get there in time to relax. I remember one year I said, honey, we've only missed two planes this year. (laughs) Now, Now, what I'm about to illustrate is one of the things we've got to deconstruct is that we have defined ministry out here in this outer circle. That's ministry. Rather than beginning with loving the Lord, loving our near ones. God brought to my mind how many times a child had said, Dad, would you come play with me? And I'd said, not now, later. (coughs) All kinds of pain came flooding back. And watch, here's what I want you to hear. What do you think the disciples thought when the servants come up and say, don't bother the master anymore, his daughter's dead. Can you imagine we've got some, I told you so now? Told you we shouldn't have stopped. Thanks a lot, lady. What does Jesus do? He tells her, your faith has made you whole. He tells Jairus, have faith. He shows up at Jairus' house. Now watch, this is very important. If you get this, the Holy Spirit's going to convict all over us. He shows up, she's died, and what does he do? He raises her from the dead. Now watch. What's greater ministry out here on these outer circles? That he healed his daughter or raised her from the dead? Come on, you go ahead and say it. Is that greater ministry? Now watch. Here's the trap the Holy Spirit must lead every senior pastor into. He had, there was greater ministry there because they stopped and loved those who were interrupting them. You look at the words that he speaks to her. He's very gentle. He's very kind. He's very compassionate. There's greater ministry out there when we stop and love those nearest us. How do you embrace that? The only way you embrace it is the way she did, Darius Darius did, and that's by faith. The Lord spoke to my heart that morning and said, David, you need to start showing up at airports. So long before 9-11, we're showing up at airports. I mean, two hours early, ain't nobody at that gate but us. We're just sitting in the airport. Just us two. We're going to get the best. She used to say there was, there's best, there's prime luggage space, she would say. We need prime luggage. I had no idea what that meant. We just started setting in the airport. Uh, one of the books that God's opened, we've had the privilege to write about 40, 45 books. One of them that's opened up more doors around the world is called Great Commandment Principle. Every principle and insight in that book, the late 1990s, God gave me while I was sitting in an airport. Pastors, I want to say to you, you need your own Jarius story. You need a story of having stopped, loved your near ones well, and God pressed it down, shook it together, and gave back abundantly at Jarius' house. Let me pray for us. Father, we are blessed. We're blessed to pause to give you thanks. We pray that you might send us by the person of power of the Holy Spirit to live out the simplicity of just loving you, loving a few people around us well, extending that into loving the household of faith, and then extending that into the mission fields 
that you put before us that we might love others into the kingdom, sharing the good news of the gospel that they also might come to love you and love others. Bless each of these, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Bless you. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast by discipleship.org. Make sure to check out that ebook we mentioned at the beginning of this episode. When you go to discipleship.org slash ebooks, search for evangelism and discipleship. Until next time, may the Lord bless you as you seek to follow Jesus into the Great Commission without neglecting the Great Commandment.